Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, standing in for our host, Cathy Sheridan. And just a quick reminder that the Women's Podcast is partnering with the Body and Soul Festival. The Irish Times is taking over the Woodland stage on the Saturday afternoon, and we are going to be recording a special post-referendum The People Have Spoken episode of this podcast. So do stop by on the Saturday afternoon, the 23rd of June, if you're there. And there are still final tier tickets available for Body and Soul. So go to bodyandsoul.ie and snap them up before they're all gone. My guest today on the Women's Podcast is Imogen Heap. She's an award-winning songwriter and performer, having released four solo albums that have enjoyed commercial success in the UK and the US. She self-released her 2005 album, Speak for Yourself, long before it became popular and fashionable to do so. She's the only female artist to have won a Grammy for engineering. And over the last six years, she's been designing and producing some musical gloves, along with the rest of her Mew Mew team, that allow the wearer to sculpt and manipulate sound on and off stage just with hand gestures. Imogen was in Dublin this week at MoneyConf to speak about her latest venture. It's the Creative Passport. And I was pleased to have her into the studio to talk about that. But we talked about lots more too, including her pal Taylor Swift, who is also in town, and how she feels about being name-checked as an influence by her and other younger female artists like Ariana Grande. But I started by asking Imogen to explain in as simple terms as possible the technology that brought her to speak at the MoneyConf in Dublin. What the hell was I doing there? <laughs> well, um, I am a musician. Um, so I, I do make music for a living. But recently in the last, well, three and a half years really, uh, I've taken a bit of a side turn into what blockchain technology can do for music makers. And... For those of you who aren't aware or have maybe heard of blockchain but have no idea what it is, it shouldn't really be necessary to explain it in the future because it will just be a part of like the internet is. It's essentially um, a technology that enables people who don't know each other to do business with each other directly. It's a way for um, when a transaction or a thing happens, then it it is logged in an open database, a, a long, an enormous public ledger, basically, of all the things that have happened. Uh, so it could be a diamond, that whether or not this diamond is a blood diamond or not. So you would know when you bought this diamond, you would be able to see the history of how that diamond came to be and where it was mined. And this and would be, be able to be seen by everybody? Yes, yeah, so that's the idea at the moment, is that you have an open database and it's an open blockchain. It's peer-to-peer. Um, the first uh, famous application that was on top of blockchain technology was the Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency, the first of its kind. 
And this enabled people to do business with each other, to buy things on the, on, on the dark net, actually, at the time, not knowing who they're buying from or who they're going to, but by way of um, a verification happening that a transaction had happened, money was released, uh, goods were released, and so people got what they wanted. But since that, we have realised that it's not just about money. Um, it could be a way to share who has written what on a song, for example. Okay. It could be to say, this song at this point was written by Imogen and then this producer came in and then they took this cut and then this record label came in and then took this cut and then this publisher did this and then this distribution company did this and this is all this is how the distribution of money around this song is and then perhaps in the future when somebody listens to that song they would by interacting with it a small micropayment would um, generate payments to all of the interested parties at the same time that's what got me excited. And you're in there sort of at an early stage and you kind of spotted the potential of this. And you have something called Mycelia. Can you tell us about that? Because you're the founder of it. Yeah, so Mycelia is really an idea. Okay. Um, mycelia in the real world is the largest organism that lives. It lives beneath our feet. It's tens of kilometres wide. Uh, it is the connective tissue underneath a forest canopy. So when you see all the trees growing at the same height in the Amazon, you might be wondering, how does that happen? Um, and that's because this layer underneath, called the mycelium, um, is transmitting data to the trees to say, oh, this tree needs a bit more light. Let's bring in some carbon. Uh, and, and it helps the forest grow together. Um, and then on the underlayer, you have mushrooms. Um, and it, and it, the, basically the ecosystem of these mushrooms and trees are actually all one organism um, connected through this mycelia. So that was a perfect metaphor for me, for mm. the music industry as the hidden layer of the music makers and the songs which propel the services above ground. But what is underneath the mechanics of that uh, is could be this mycelial layer, this connective tissue, um, which at the moment we don't have. So we have a very fragmented, clunky music industry with no easy way to license songs and no easy way to find out who does what and no verified information points um, for, say, the biography of a, music, uh, of a musician. So this is a way to... Uh, what we've developed is... Uh, mycelia is the name of the idea of kind of a a fair and sustainable and flourishing music ecosystem imagining the songs database and the creative database as this kind of ground layer. And what we're doing is developing uh, a little, well, essentially an app at the moment, um, which we're calling the Creative Passport. And the idea is to give the music maker a point uh, of visibility for the fan. But essentially it's for business-to-business solution for music makers who are you know, all self-employed and all have many different hats that they wear, whether they're a producer or a, a, a clarinetist or a you know, singer or an editor or whatever they do, um, a, way to, a, a way to show the digital version of the creative self, essentially. So you're talking to me, yeah. Imogen Heap, the creative, the musician, the many-faceted thing that every person is in the world, and this shows what are my skill sets, what are my songs that I've written, um, who am, what kind of interests do I have? What are my passions? Um, who would I like to work with? Who have I worked with? So is your mycelia now just about you or do you have other uh, musicians on yeah. board? Um, so at the moment we've done lots of workshops and we've got lots of kind of, you know, 
nobody of note, I suppose, in the terms of it's not like Taylor Swift hasn't got a creative well, passport. she's in Dublin, you might bump into her. Oh, there you go. Well, you know, <laughs> she's a bit of a friend as well. Um, but it's, it's really about um, getting music makers to put their foot forward and to, uh, in September, we're going to have an, a little app where people can say, I am Imogen Heap, and then I can go to my friend Amanda Palmer, who was here last week, and go, yes, I can verify that that is Amanda Palmer. And then she can go to our our mutual friend called Zoe Keating, and she can verify that that's Zoe Keating. And then Zoe Keating can come back to me and go, can you double verify that I am Zoe Keating? And we create this web of trust, this kind of peer-to-peer handshake across the world of people who have verified that that is who they say they are. And then we have generated this map of musicians around the world and we've developed we have we have put our foot forward and created a space for us this is a non-profit so um the creative passport is free for music makers at this stage you know it doesn't it won't do anything in particular but what we hope to do from september for a whole year around the world we're going to tour a different week a different city and we're going to do talks at different conferences um we're going to discuss the governance, the identity side, the security, the, the remuneration, smart contracts, so many different sides, bringing in partners and people to help us along the way. And so then you're basically doing a world tour, evangelising about this. Yeah, and bringing people onto the system, um, onboarding musicians, and, and really filling them with this imagination of how we could really help our music industry by becoming empowered and um, organised with our data. When you talk to musicians now, it's a very sad tale, seems to me. Any ones that I know or any ones that, you know, I just don't, I don't know. There's the, the general feeling in terms of Spotify or in terms of being acknowledged and paid for your work. It seems to be a really terrible time for musicians. Is this what has motivated you to do what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the innovation that's happened has been around the distribution of the music. So in Spotify or YouTube or whatever, um, because people essentially want to hear as much music as possible for as cheap as possible. Um, so that innovation has happened um, for the fan side. A lot of people call it the golden age for, for music, for listeners, but it's not become the golden age for music makers yet. We need the same amount of disruption coming back to, to close the loop to create that remuneration and that data flow back to the music makers and anyone involved in those songs. So that's one side. Um, but whether, you know, we're ever going to get streaming rates up by any significant amount, I doubt it. Um, but really, that's not the problem. The problem is that we haven't had innovation in any of the other sectors that we that we could imagine, you know, basically by putting music makers on the map. Literally, imagine Google Maps. Imagine your tiny little restaurant and you're a family, you know, a family restaurant, and you've just set up, you know, in the basement of your flat or whatever, um, and you've got these great cheese toasties. Um, nobody would know that you're there if it wasn't for Google Maps, who says, "Oh, restaurants near you, check out these local cheese toasties." Um, whereas normally you would just probably stick to the high street if you'd gone to a new city, you wouldn't know to go there. So this is essentially putting music makers on the map. It's going, you are there. This is what you do. This is what you can offer. These are your skill sets. Anyone out there looking for somebody to write music for a new piece of green technology or a mother who is also a clarinetist who could go on tour with X band. You know, there are so many different ways to make money as a musician and streaming is a tiny fraction of that. In my income, is a tiny fraction. You know, my income comes from being commissioned to write music for a film or go and speak at a conference or do a workshop or give a lesson or go and play some 
piano on somebody's record. You know, there are so many, or engineering. And, and every musician has multiple skills, and that could be video blogging or designing a dress for somebody, you know. So this is about opening up whole new revenue streams, possibilities, and enabling services to innovate on this data that is currently currently hidden. So the future's bright. You're, you're sort of somebody who's always been a bit ahead of things, I, I feel. So when you were a child, when you were grown up in Haverly, is that the name? Havering. Havering ha- Atibower. Havering. Just inside London. Were you that kind of person then? Do you have memories early on of kind of like wanting to know about sort of all sorts of weird and wonderful things? Um, I really liked making things. I always liked making stuff, like whether it was little balsa wood houses or a little piece with a tape-to-tape recorder to try and record a thing over a thing over a thing, um, or trying to, you know, punch holes into a, a reel to make the pianola read it um, as music. I just like, I like knowing, I liked knowing how things worked, um, and I, I was really encouraged by my parents to just, you know, get on with things and just like be interested. And, and what did they do? Um, my dad runs his own business, which is in the rock business, but in the aggregate business. Um, like actual rocks. Like actual rocks, yeah. Um, but that's his little joke, which is quite funny. It's good, good one. It's quite good, not after the hundredth time. Um, and then my mum, you know, is, uh, is actually studied art therapy later in life. So now she, she is in art therapy and she has a special... Um, she, she works with, you know, anyone from refugees to cancer patients to help them kind of come to health or come to a, a better space through art um, and colour. So they're both very different creatures. One is a very business head and um, one is not at all a business head and doesn't have any way really of, not very good at making money, but very good at, you know, giving. Um, and uh, and my dad's been really helpful to me, in the, you know, by giving me that confidence really when I needed it um, I kind of he didn't really get the music side of things till a lot later when it started to make me money then he got it right. whereas my mum my mum was more like oh if it's what you love then that's what you should do and she she got happy when she saw I was happy when she saw that I was creating music that was really you know something um and did you did you get music lessons very early in life or I did yeah I did kind of yeah uh we had a piano like I said and I really loved it it was very loud and it was very interesting because it had lots of mechanisms and things. Um, and I was a middle child and I think I really just wanted to be the centre of attention. So uh, I played the piano and then I tried to get lessons quite early on to get out of classes. Um, and I managed to get you know, in there quite early because you can only get lessons when your feet reach the pedals. So I was a bit taller than your average child. So I got in there quite early. And then I figured, oh, right, so if I get out of music, uh, by, if I get out of maths or whatever by playing the piano, then I can do clarinet and I'll do cello and I'll do all these other things. And it took me out of um, the lessons to do these other lessons. You know, I was in a lucky position because my parents were able to help me out with that. Um, so they really, really encouraged me. And, and I just liked, I just really liked... I really enjoyed writing for choir and I mean, it wasn't very good, but, you know, when I was young, I, I kind of could write dots and wrote for choir. And, and you went to boarding school at uh, around 11, was it? Yeah, then when my parents split up, we went to boarding school. Was that traumatic, the split up? Was that difficult at that time? I I don't remember it being traumatic, but if I look back on it, it probably was a bit traumatic. But it felt less traumatic than having to decide. 
who to go with. But actually, there wasn't that option wasn't really there. Um, my my gran decided that it was best for us to go to boarding school, so she paid for us to go to boarding school. Um, that was that didn't go down so well um, with my mum. But anyway, so we went there, and that's where I discovered this Atari computer. Okay. And that's really where the love and the passion with technology and computers happened. Because now, at that point, was it an Atari where you had the tennis? Pop, pop yeah, it's a bit beyond that. I wasn't um, great, that's yeah. I'm a little bit older than you, so that's my first memory of. Uh, um, yeah, no, we know. we already had a little music program on there, uh, Steinberg Notator. It was all still black and white and very much kind of numbers and not pretty pictures and blocks um, and little MIDI interface, little kind of sound set that we could play with. Um, but it was in a cupboard. Nobody knew how to use it. it had a huge manual, um, but the music teacher and I really didn't get along. Um, and I was a bit of a, you know, I liked to cause a fuss and I wasn't very good at behaving. But I was just bored, I suppose. Um, and my music teacher was, I think, really being kind to me in the end because he just knew what I wanted to do. And and he let me go off and just sit in the cupboard and make music. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. That's... So you had, that, you had that kind of freedom and a sort of a sense that you were, oh, look, she's a, bit of a, she's a bit of trouble, but we'll just let her away and do what she needs to do. But was there a sense of, because I'm, I am actually a bit fascinated with boarding school and any time I have someone on who's in boarding school, I'm always really Did interested. You go to no, okay. but I, I read a lot about people who, like <laughs> I was a big um, Edith Blyton and I oh. always used to read about Mallory Towers and all these places. But I also used to think, what must it be like to be sent, like I always thought of it as being sent away and mm. like that separation thing yeah. and how it affects you. Yeah, I think it has affected me. Um, and I'm kind of still unraveling it really as an adult. Um, I think I think it made me like violently independent um and just kind of I'm going to do everything myself right parents aren't around I'm going to look after myself I'm going to do this I'm going to do that and and that kind of didn't did and didn't serve me well and it's only really recently in the last kind of 5 or 10 years that I've actually accepted that it is good to work with other people and it is nice to work with other people and collaboration is good um also coupled with the fact that there was this belief that when you're when you want to write music, you should be sad to write music, and that's not true. Where did that come from? I think just in well, I think it's just a thing. You know, I remember having a boyfriend who was a lot older, was a little bit dodgy, um, <laughs> but he was into this kind of quite dark music, Sid Barrett, um, and I understood that he was very depressed and he had to write this music and blah, blah, blah. and my boyfriend was very dark and depressed and he wrote music, so I thought, oh, that must be how he must have to be. And Morrissey um, was there and he was very depressed. <laughs> yeah, and he was very depressed. Um, so I, yeah, I just kind of went into this space where I thought you that had to be sad. That art is sort of suffering as well. Yeah. Mm. And, and then kind of went into my own world and just thought, well, this is good because this is how to write music. You need to get into this dark place. So I got myself into quite bad situations because I thought this is going to be good for your creativity, yeah. which is not really good when you're young. And that continued, actually. And I, I feel like I've only just realised very recently, actually, that I'm a bit upset with you know, people early on in my career for perpetuating that belief. You know, some people who had worked with me for almost two decades continued that, you know, and it only, it only, I only got wise to it very recently um, where they would say, oh, you've just split up with your boyfriend. Oh, that's good. That means you're going to come up with a good song now. And it's like, that's not really the kind of thing that you should be, you know, helping Was it men forward. saying this mostly? Or? Yeah. Okay. Um, 
And so, but, but to be honest, I only really came across men in the music industry. Yeah. Didn't really yeah. come across women. Um, and because I'm a solo artist, I work by myself. So I didn't have like collaborators of other women mm. or. Um, and yeah. when you were in school, you mm. were started to write things mm. quite early, like 13, 14 type of age. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote because nobody really wanted to talk to me in the beginning. Um, so I spent a lot of time on my own in the piano room. <laughs> Talking to the devil, actually. Um, yes. Were you on a Ouija board or something? No, I actually... Uh, it sounds very... I've never actually spoken about this, but um, I remember being in the music room and just... It was really quite a difficult time, actually, um, because there was this there was this phase when you arrive at a school, unless you're, like, uber cool and uber yeah. confident, which I totally wasn't, and I was a year up from where I should have been. Um, so I was with much older girls... or well, relatively much older girls. And... I was a bit weird and I didn't really know how to dress and I kind of, I was a bit awkward. Um, so I would spend hours in the piano room uh, kind of trying to ally myself with the dark force of the devil um, and felt like I kind of got there sometimes, you know, and it gave me some kind of weird power um, and confidence. And that sounds very strange now, but I was 12, um, you know, and who knows god and devil and all that stuff it's not it wasn't even in my upbringing but i think because I, I went out with this quite weird guy um who was much older um anyway so it was a strange bit and that was kind of yes. at the root of your very beginning as an artist like so it kind of obviously carried on in some some way yeah that I mean, dark force has been yeah, you know fueling you quite early on yeah, but <laughs> there was this very strange just trying to figure out the world and people and friendships and why people were mean and you know, who was going to be my pal in this? Who was going to beat up people, you know, for me somehow when they're in their sleep or something? Um, which is what I thought maybe the devil might do did, to me. Did you eventually <laughs> make friends in that school? So, yes, I did make friends. And the actually lovely story to this is that the person who was the most mean to me in a way um, was deeply troubled herself. Um, and uh, she turned up and I, you know, I have quite small boobs. And um, when she turned up, I was extremely like you know, paranoid about them. And also the girls were older as well, so they had bigger boobs anyway. Um, But I had this padded bra, you know, very padded bra. And she turned up into my um, German class and threw it into the German classroom. And all the boys were just really ripping on me, just just totally just would not let it go. Just like, oh, massive padded bra. It was really awful. And I never lived it down. But then I decided to take her wabbit which is this stuffed toy that she had, which is very dear to her, and I understood later the the, the deep meaning behind how awful this was. Um, I, I stuck hundreds of safety pins in it, and I bought it, and then I sellotaped it uh, around, so it's like a mummified rabbit, wabbit. Um, and then I bought it in, and I gave it to her, and she was devastated and burst into tears, and then I went out laughing. Anyway, that's how evil we were to each other. <laughs> She's kind of evil. Um, anyway, in the end, we became really the best of friends, and actually wow. now she has this incredible childcare place which looks after Scout, my little three-year-old. Wow. Um, and we kind of made friends as adults later, and she's helped looking after Scout today. That's really yeah. <laughs> um, you left school and you were straight into the music industry, is that right? Yeah, um, I was in a school... I went from friend school, which was this boarding school. Um, then it was the, uh, the option was stay at boarding school with Mr Dodge, who was the music teacher. I didn't want to do that because I would have been the only one doing music and I was the only one doing GCSE and it was pretty horrendous. Um, or go to this place called the Brit School, which 
we discovered was this in two years it was the second year of its incarnation and it would it would be free which meant I could go there and then stay with the family so you know instead of going somewhere else paying for the boarding school so I went to this place and um, stayed with this nice family in a place called Wallington um, for a bit and then um, yeah and then learned about hard disk recording oh well tape to tape recording engineering recorded my own voice for the first time this was time. at the new school you learned all about at it. the Brits yeah oh. the Brits school and it was there. Is that, that the school I, that Adele went to? Yes, it is that thing. same school. Um, a lot later than me. I'm a lot. Yeah, I'm a lot. I'm a lot older than Adele. You know, I'm 40 now. Um, so that's where I went. And yeah, was no. that like heaven in a way? Because it was all about being expressing yourself and being creative and music uh, and. Yeah, I mean, I really wasn't interested in being a pop star or a record I didn't even know that I wanted to be a recording artist I just knew that I wanted to make music and I thought I would end up I to be honest I didn't even really think that far ahead I just thought I like music I keep doing lots of music and I'm going to do stuff I like and eventually I felt like it would work out um but I did used to make these songs you know and I and I made recordings of them because that was part of the course of the BTEC of music technology that you had to record songs so I recorded a song called Missing You which is pretty cheesy um but it went on their school CD that they used to do and then I did another one called Aliens which is about aliens landing on planet earth um <laughs> it's really awful as well and um you can actually download them now if you Great. want to and have a listen um so uh, anyway my manager who ended up being my manager for a very long time um, heard those demos and kind of chased me around the school, I, literally chasing me around the school because I kept running away, thinking he was just this weirdo who fancied me. Because um, I didn't understand this concept of music industry and recording, and like that wasn't on my radar. And then he um, heard these early demos, put me in the studio with this producer, uh, well, Nick Kershaw. Um, Nick Kershaw? The Nick Kershaw. Oh, my God. The wonderful, lovely, dearest sweetheart. Of Nick Kershaw. Is he lovely? He's so yeah, lovely. I always imagine he'd be a very nice And he's man. very funny as well yeah. and he's super, very talented. And he taught me that you didn't need to write songs that were eight minutes long because I was like, la la la, <laughs> go into another key, change the tempo, turn it upside down, go here, sing a different language, da da da. Um, and he was like, why don't you just do it in three minutes? Um, so I made this song called Come Here Boy and he kind of edited it down. And it was about my music teacher, actually, who I really fancied. Uh, ah. And because uh, he was very encouraging, I mistook encouragement for fancying. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so so actually, that got me a record deal. And Mark, who was my manager for a long time, um, got me that first record deal when I was just eighteen. That's amazing. Yeah. And was that? Um, I mean, what sense had you that what this would mean? Like you said, you weren't really that clued into. I want to be a pop star or whatever. Were the people in your class completely jealous that this had happened to you? And um, I basically left school. I didn't really. I wasn't really that much in cl- into class. I was into after class mm. um, and in between class. Um, <laughs> but I did spend a lot of time in the studio because um, Gary Hayes just kind of let me, yeah. let me, you know, work work there, which is great. Um, so I, I had a, I had a couple of friends, yeah, that I did hang out with quite a lot. Um, one of them didn't actually go to the school at all, um, and just yeah so so they yeah they were kind of excited but I didn't really know what was happening um and then pretty much as soon as I got the record deal I was just working then and I didn't have I didn't I kind of stopped having a social life to be honest I never really had a big social life I all my spare time just really went into just making stuff but I did drink a lot I did drink I did, did you? That's true. I did go to spend down the pub a few times <laughs> um so yeah I got this deal and I thought I'd give it a go for a bit it's not really what I thought I'd end up doing but 
it's giving me some money. Mm. And then I thought, I'm always a bit a year ahead, so I'll give it a year, and if it doesn't work out, then I'll go to college and study contemporary classical music, because mm. that's what I wanted to do. Um, but it kind of did work out-ish, um, even though I signed a terrible deal, and I'll never, you know, get those go, get those recordings back. Um, but, you know, it got me, got my foot in the door, and uh, and I really... In fact, one of the, the nicest people that's now in my life again, uh, everything comes around, this producer that I worked with on the second iteration of the first album, a guy called David Kahn, um, has come back into my life and introduced me to somebody who is potentially going to fund the tour, the Mycelia tour, um, which is a very wonderful thing. Um, anyway, To have a benefactor, basically. Yeah, a supporter. It's not him directly, it's this friend of his who's kind of involved in this company we've got this incredible new technology about making streaming 40 percent faster um it's, it's, it's yeah it's called quiptel um so anyway it might be that something connected with her might end up funding the tour um so magic things happen in the music industry and really coming back to creative passport it's about helping those magic connections happen easier um by 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 being there to, to let us have the magic happen too mm. um, so that we can find those collaborators um, and those, whether it's business or or creative um, because there's so many opportunities out there every single, you know so much has music connected to it I mean, I, I heard the other day that there's a prediction that by 2020 one million hours of music an hour will be, no one million hours of music will be consumed every second. No, sorry, one million hours of uh, a video will be consumed every second. And in that, um, you know, so much of that is music, background music, foreground music, you know, whatever it might be. There's just always, you know, there's so much music. So how can we help the music makers, you know, really benefit from that enormous growth yeah. uh, and make it easy for people to license our works? And it's just... It's crazy that we're not so much, we're not further ahead. That music should be so difficult to work with, but it is. You've had um, you wouldn't be sort of uh, mainstream success. Would that be fair enough to say more of an indie success? Is that? I would say I've had um, yes. I would definitely not mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like I can walk down the street and you know people don't have no idea run away, run after you. But I make a, a really good living by you know doing all kinds of weird things connected to music. Um, and have had a very diverse kind of career in the people that I work with. Some of them who have been really successful, like mm. Taylor Swift um, or Josh Groban or you know whoever else, Jeff Beck. Um, but myself never become that that kind of famous person. And thank God for that. You know, I've one of your fans much. I read said um, that they didn't want you to be mainstream. They, they didn't because they didn't want the world to have you. They didn't want to share you. Mm. Um, they felt like yeah, is that a is, do you, you recognise that kind of comment is that something well, that I think comes up what, what comes with mainstream is a lot of um, is a lot of privacy that gets lost and I'm not interested in having that go I love the flexibility I can have in my life and that I can go anywhere and you know I know when somebody recognises me and it's not like oh my god it's Imogen Hitch I can't talk or like you know weird paparazzi left right and centre it's just a little kind of knowing nod like I know who you are I'm smiling hello <laughs> um and that's just amazing but at the same time I get to work with you know 
and I get to chat with all kinds of extremely famous and talented people. Um, but I don't have to worry about that baggage. And I just find, I feel like I have the perfect place, um, you know, that I get to do the things I love. Um, my peers recognise me for the work that I do. And I get to, you know, be a mum, which is, you know, pretty amazing to be a musician, making a living and being a mum. That is, I mean, it's hard not to be a mum anyway. How old is Scott? She's three and a half. Yeah. And she's been a great inspiration, obviously. Um, so I, I often like get into a taxi and they're like, you know, London taxi, and like, all right, all right. So, you know, what do you do then for a living? Some kind of, kind of creative person because uh, <laughs> they can tell by some weird clothing that I might be wearing on they're like are you a fashion designer or whatever and I say no 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 I'm, I'm a musician actually I make music and they're like oh yeah singer are you and I'm like well yes I do sing but I also do xyz yeah. and he's like oh well so what's your name then I say oh my name's Imogen Heap and they're like oh well maybe one day you'll make it and you're like yeah maybe I will in whatever you know your version of success but I I just I feel so lucky. Yeah. How many albums have you got now? Uh, I think I've had four solo records and one free-free record. Been on a ton of collaboration albums, but I'm about to one day, hopefully, release the um, Harry Potter play album from the music. Really? From the play. You did the music for that? I did the music. Didn't for that. know that. That's very interesting. That is very and was that a big, big project? That was a big project. Yeah. Yes. It was six months of very intense work for two and a half hours. Two and a half hours of music for a five-hour play. Uh, and really fascinating working in the theatre space. I've never done that before. Sitting in the theatre seat and in the pre-production space, developing the work um, with the director and the sound engineer, sound designer, and the lighting designer, and the costume department, and the set designer, and, um, and the actors, bringing to life this piece of magic. Uh, it really is amazing. You should, if you can, go and see it. Yeah. Um, I know there's a bit of a queue. Um, <laughs> you can probably get us tickets. I could actually get tickets. <laughs> you know some people. Yeah, you know I, some I people. I could do that. Um, no, it's really fascinating. And, you know, the amazing thing is that, oddly, um, outside the music industry, you get paid. You know, if you do yeah. if you do a gig for some, I don't know, company or brand, you get paid well. But anything in the music industry, you don't get paid well. That's part of the reason of this Creative Passport is opening up to the world outside of your, you know, the little bubble of the creative, mm. the music industry as we know it, because it's in those partnerships with people outside who want the music and the, the connection between the, the creatives directly um, is where the money is. And so theatre has just been amazing for me. You also did a, a song on the when the credits rolled on the Narnia movie. That's, That's right. What yeah. song was that? Uh, it was called I Can't Take It In. Yeah, I can't take it in. Was that a good moment as well? That was a good moment, yeah. I loved working uh, in this, this this studio in LA and then I had to take it to New York. It was actually quite... It was a very, very intense time because they just suddenly uh, said that they wanted me to do it and I was in the middle of a holiday in, okay. in Nevada. No, uh, going to Grand Canyon, actually, with my boyfriend on, in a camper van, um, in a Winnebago or whatever they're called. Yeah. And uh, I kind of had to reverse back and, <laughs> and go and do this have this opportunity to write for this film and, and is it, it true that Dido was supposed to do it or something and they didn't take her song or something oh, I don't like know. that I think there wasn't there was another artist who was I didn't realise at the time but yeah. it was that there were two people up for it I think I know but I'm not going to mention <laughs> but it wasn't Dido okay. um, but actually what ended up happening was um, because it was such a kind of grand bit of music that I ended up writing and I had to produce it in my, myself um, I ended up then working through the night it was actually the most intense time because I had 
all this promo in the day from like nine to five. And then the only time I could finish work on this was between five to like seven in the morning when I woke up. So I was literally not sleeping. And I slept in the studio on a chair like for 20 minutes until I was awake enough and then I carried on. But I did get nominated for a Grammy. So that was the first time I got a nomination. Yeah, and you're the only woman to win a Grammy uh, for engineering. I think I'm... I think what I am is that I'm the only woman to win a Grammy for engineering uh, artist, for sure, and I'm the only solo woman that has won. There might be, like, ten engineers on a record and three women's got involved in there somewhere, but for... I mean, I definitely know the beginning I was the only engineer who'd won a Grammy, but I think that happened. And how many Grammys do you have altogether? I've got only... I've only got two. Only two? Two's two's a lot. Two Grammys. One's (laughs) enough, to be honest. Um, And one is for engineering and one is for... Producing Taylor Swift's song called Clean. Yeah. And co-songwriting it. But I didn't really songwrite it. She says I did, but I didn't really. Um, She's... Uh, as far as I read, a, a big fan, and your your friends, um, obviously, you've worked together, um, mm. and I, it's really interesting listening to your music. I can sort of totally see that influence, especially in Taylor's more recent stuff. All right, um, that must be really nice to have that younger artists who are kind of looking to you. Yeah, it is because it just brings a whole new audience. Um, I mean, yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, actually, recently, I think I'm allowed to talk about it now because she announced it on Twitter. Um, but Ariana Grande. Uh, she sent me a version of a song of mine called Goodnight and Go, which is absolutely beautiful. It's just so gorgeous. She's got a little kind of extra bit in the beginning where she, you know, talks, uh, she's kind of singing, rapping. Um, but it's really beautiful what she's done. It's really pared down. It's really vocal, layered. It's gorgeous. Um, and I was just like, it's a gift, you know, it really is. Because the re- other than it, you know, just being a lovely version of the song and, and I know her and I think she's, she's such a sweet, amazing young woman. Um, very talented and incredible what she did with One Love Manchester and all that. Um, but on top of that, just, you know, the, the harsh reality is that, you know, one album of hers, one song on one album of hers equals, you know, 10 albums worth of my own, <laughs> you know, 10 new albums of my own worth in terms of money. So it is like a gift, yeah, to get something on like, on that. Yeah. And has um, you produced Clean for Taylor? Mm-hmm. Has she ever covered any of your songs? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to drop a little I hint there. I don't think so. No, no, she's certainly never not done it uh, commercially. But she, no, but I mean, Ariana was, um, you know, when she was very young, um, like 15, 16, she had a, a YouTube channel where she covered Hide and Seek ah, and Just yeah. For Now. Really amazing technology, you know, she was looping stuff and really studied what I was doing um, and I was really impressed at this young girl kind yeah. of doing this and you know would send her encouraging messages um, and now you know <laughs> she's like this gigantic world superstar um, and just go back to Taylor Swift because she's here in Dublin she's actually here in Dublin I'm a big fan of hers yeah. she's in Dublin at the moment and she's going to be playing on Friday and Saturday night and I'm going to both nights Oh. Yes, I am because I I just really like her. She's had a lot a lot of what her work at the moment is about this reputation and you know talking a lot about the way she's seen in the spotlight and the fame and stuff like that, which is interesting. So, just from what you were saying, that you did you would really not like that. What's it like observing, say, someone you know going through all that stuff and seeing how it can affects people? And yeah, you know. I mean, yeah, I've seen it affect so many people, um, and uh, yeah, it's really really hard. Um, because the more you give, sometimes the more people want a piece of you. There's a balance, isn't there, somewhere where you you share enough that kind of 
keeps people happy. But then there's a point at which, you know, you become super famous and that everybody just wants to grab a, a piece of you. And that, that must be extreme. Oh, well, I know it is, not for myself, but from them, how extremely tiring that is and invasive that is. Um, but it is it is the price you pay for being extremely successful. Um, you know, but however, there are people, you know, who are extremely successful who have managed to... But have had flurries, you know, like Bjork, for example, Bjork, Bjork, whatever you pronounce it. <laughs> um, you know, really having issues. We've seen her like beating yeah. up, you know, journalists or whatever, but paparazzi coming off the airport, uh, and just like the end of her tether, you know. But at the same time, she she does, you know, live. A, a, it seems like a peaceful life in Reykjavik, and it's a very different culture. You know, I think um, there are certain. I, I feel like in England. It's a different type of fan, you know, like if Taylor Swift walked down the street, she would she would obviously like heads would turn. But I think there's a bit more kind of stand back a little bit more. OK, let her go, you know, not yeah. make too much of a fuss. But in America, it's very different. You know, it's like I get recognised and people come up to me and they're much more forward than they are, you know, in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, and I and I quite like that I can come back home and. You know. Be anonymous. Yeah. Um, you have been living in London, but you're going to move soon. Is that right? Well, what I was hinting at is I'm going on tour. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go on tour for a whole year. Yeah. So I'm going to with Scout. leave my flat for a year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go on tour with Scout and my boyfriend, Mike, baby daddy Mike, who's going to make <laughs> a film on um, on the tour to see whether we can launch this Music Maker database from the ground up. So every single city we go to, we're going to do workshops for music makers and we're going to onboard them. And that gives them the power to then go and onboard other music makers and visit and find a way at Music Tech Fest, which is where we're going to launch this in Stockholm on the 3rd of September, um, to actually visualise that growth. I would love to somebody to hack at that event, um, the visualisation of when people come on board and where they are in the world so we can visualise it. and we Like can in see. a Google Maps kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, it might be in a year's time when I come back to Dublin and do a show here and we do our workshop here and we come back to Money Conference um, because each place we go to we do a conference, a talk, a workshop, a kids' workshop and our own show, so Imogen Heap and Fru Fru will be doing shows. Um, and then that maybe the story will be when we come back to Dublin there'll be thousands of music makers we'll have, we'll have you know really an amazing momentum or it might be that it's like pulling teeth and can't convince anyone and there's like five and it's all been a total waste of time but it'll make a good film either way <laughs> um so michael will be happy um, and does he make films is that what he does, does he does make films yes that's, that's how handy. we handy so yeah. he gets to do what he likes to do yeah and you yeah. get to do what you do yeah yeah and scout gets a big global holiday scout gets you. an amazing holiday um <laughs> and meets lots of our friends all over the world yeah um, and takes part in the kids' workshops. Because um, one of the things we want to do, which we are going to do, is uh, working with Little Inventors, which is uh, led by this guy called Dominic Wilcox. I met him on the tube, actually. Um, but he lives around the corner. Um, is to invite uh, children in to the workshop to invent musical instruments. And then we're going to connect with local maker labs and get people to make these instruments. Brilliant. And then at the end of the tour, have an exhibition of hopefully hundreds of beautiful little musical instruments that kids have made and uh, and that will be the kind of one of the exhibitions at the end of the tour in London. And what about new work? Are you working on anything? I am, yes. Um, 
but there's not that much time so it's more commissioned works at the moment uh, i am releasing a song soon connected to i can't talk about it um but it's Come coming on. out i'm not allowed it's to do with a game um a game okay. yeah a, game. a video game yeah, video game, yeah. Um, I've never done that before. So that's going to come out probably at the end of August or something that's like that. That's exciting. Um, it's a song called The Quiet. Um, and then another thing potentially for a new TV series, kids' TV series, uh, animation, beautiful thing. I can't talk about that either. Um, <laughs> trying to write that by the end of next week. Um, and then and then hopefully the Harry Potter album will come out uh, soon. It's just a lot of legal nightmare at the moment. Um, Did you get to talk much to J.K. Rowling through that process? Um, not so much in the process. Uh, I've met her a few times. Very nice lady. Um, I, to be honest, I didn't speak to anyone very much in the process because I was literally headphones on from 10 in the morning till 10 at night in a chair making the music. Um, so I didn't really get a chance to... That's my one regret, actually, is I didn't really get to know anyone. Um, kind of getting to know them now at the awards ceremonies, you know. Um, actually won an award for the for the music, which oh, is brilliant. pretty nice. Um, because actually a lot of people never talk about the music in a play yeah that's true um but it is very prominent um so it's nice to finally have won an award and now people are like oh Imogen Heap makes music for plays too um and they talk they start to talk about the because they just don't notice it it's like in a film you might just be like oh this and that and they, and they were like music was there music in it I didn't even notice there's music um yeah so. and was hide and seek the last song on the OC is that right that was on the OC the, fight, the finale program. of the second series yes that was a That's good one right. too. That was a big moment for me. Yeah, because yeah. um, I self-financed that album, uh, put it out on my own label, made the video myself, and then managed to get it into the end of the OC thanks to a nice person. Um, and then everyone was very excited. They were like, "What was this song?" When Marissa shot Trey, um, and they all did lots of googling and discovered me, and then downloaded the song. So. It, yeah, it really, really helped that record come to life. Yeah, I mean, that is, again, it's those happy accidents and those relationships that we can develop again. That's uh, kind of another prime example of why we need the creative passports um, because we can we can really grow our networks and our collaborations, connections. I need to talk to you before you go about a couple of technology things. You had these gloves mm-hmm. where people could create sounds by waving their hands around it. That's, that's right. a very basic way of describing yes, it. Yes, that's pretty good. That's basically what they do. Um, they're called the Mimi gloves, like me and music. And, uh, yeah, towards the end of the year, we should have a manufactured... Really? Um, ready to buy How pair of these gloves. Cost? We can't say just yet, but it is, it's not going to be five grand, that's for sure. But they have been five grand in the past, but we have now solved the manufacturing uh, problem. Um, and we are going to... We're going to hopefully have something for the end of the year. You also like a bit of 3D printing, printed jewellery. You have done that in the past. Ah, where did you read that? Um, that's something that I... I, I love I the sound actually, of that. I'd like to do that myself. Yeah, it didn't end up happening, but maybe for the tour we can try and make it work. I like this idea of using 3D printing uh, so that somebody could sing or talk a message into an online platform and then that would create a sound wave that would then create an image and then you could wrap that around... A, you know, uh, a bracelet or a ring. So you could say, I love you, and that could be your engagement ring. But it would be backed behind a sound wave uh, of one of my pieces of music. So it's like Image and Heat merch, 3D printed. I like it. Kind of, yeah. The third one is your twit dress that you had. Yeah. So that that was um, a way... Because you're a big social media person. Yeah, I kind of... 
I go through waves. Um, I kind of I'd really adopted that technology whenever it was when it first came out because I like this idea of micro blogging because I was doing a blog on YouTube uh, on the making of my record and the building of my studio uh, but I felt like I was missing lots of bits in between so I went onto Twitter and because I was one of the first people on Twitter uh, they decided to feature me as one of the artists so lots of people ticked my name not knowing who I was and then I got loads of followers and that really was kind of helped me out um, so I really had a, a great time with that before it became this very saturated place um, but it, I found it a really lovely, lovely. but now it's kind of become a bit unmanageable so I don't really use it so much um, So you had a Twitter address So I had a Twitter address which basically messages from the fans uh, accompanying me as I walk down the red carpet at the Grammys and some pictures coming up on my see-through Perspex handbag uh, on my iPhone of pictures that were connected to those tweets Yeah very cool. But I almost burnt myself with the router that was stuck <laughs> in my knickers. Um, and I was almost late for my award, which I did win, uh, because I couldn't get the router to work. And I had to go round three times in the limousine and finally managed to make it work and then nearly burnt my bum with I the I think it's a really good place to, to end this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on the red um, but thank you very much for describing all your very, very interesting and innovative work and the, this creative passport that is hopefully, if it all works out to plan, will be a huge resource for musicians of all kinds of success levels. People starting out, people who are established and that connectivity and those those chance encounters that happen in every industry, but that they can be more formalised in, in some way in, in, and to help everybody. Yeah. So um, well done on everything you're doing. Thanks. And it's been an absolute pleasure to meet yeah, you. Lovely to meet you. And I might see you at Taylor Swift on Friday night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much, yeah, Imogen Heap. Thank you, thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to Imogen Heap for coming into the studio to speak to us. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. Or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review and tell all your friends to listen to the Women's Podcast. Today's episode was produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.